Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This week we have Amit Watwini on the pod. Amit started his career working for legendary value investor Martin J. Whitman in the 80s, when Whitman was investigating bankruptcies. Amit then followed Whitman to Third Avenue, where he managed the boutique's international strategies, including emerging markets. Amit is considered one of the first and longest value investors in emerging markets. In 2014, Amit left Third Avenue to launch Morius Capital, which opened in 2015, then for clients in 2016. In this episode, Amit and Juan will discuss Amit's background and career, including his experience working for legendary investor Martin Whitman, what experience he has learned from 30 years of value investing, including what has helped him and his team to avoid style drift in the last seven years, how emerging markets are historically good hunting grounds for value, why balance sheet risk is so important now and how important it was 30 years ago, and finally, what is the best way to communicate with clients when investing their funds in international or uncertain territories. Enjoy. Amit Wadwayani, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Juan, for having me this morning, or this afternoon, actually. Well, that's a good way to start. Why? Where do we find you today? Well, I'm actually uh, in my study uh, in uh, New York, in New York City, in Queens, in Astoria, New York, which is where I live, which is where uh, I'm some, a part of the time. And doing, doing what I usually do here in you know, many hours of the day, you know, days, weeks, weekends, so forth. Yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know who you are, can you please provide us with a little bit of your background and how did you came to be a deep value investor? So I, I, I started a number of years ago, actually in 1990, I was at Third uh, uh, Avenue Management. It was actually the predecessor company, MJ Whitman, initially in 1990. I was there for about 20 years. 20 years, and we were, it was a great firm. It's a firm which, where we had a great mentor, Marty, Marty Whitman, who was a great value investor, great distress investor. And it was a very particular style of investing. A number of us, after many years of being there, myself, and a couple of colleagues of mine who had been there for uh, about a decade, give or take, you know, a couple of years. Uh, in one case, more than a decade. The other case, a bit, a bit less than a decade. Moved on. We moved to a firm which we set up called Morris Capital Management. Morris started operations in 2015 and really opened our doors to outside investors in 2016 because, you know, the usual, uh, how should I say this, uh, constraints in when you can start up and so forth. So, you know, we, we, the thing about Moiris, the differences 
are as you know as pronounced as the similarities to the place we were at. We 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 learned a lot over the years. Again, if you were at a firm for 20 years, the firm starts as a very small firm, this is Third Avenue, and then it becomes a larger and larger firm. As firms grow, evolve, morph, they can turn to something somewhat different from what you signed up for. And so the learnings that we chose to sort of take with us and implement at Moiris were, for example, we were going to be very focused. Okay, so we, we, we were going to do one thing and one thing alone. We're disciplined, long-term, deep value investing focused on global stocks around the world, developing, developing markets. Again, it would be a deep value focus and it'd be long-term investing. We were going to avoid the temptation of, you know, manufacturing products in subcategories, which sometimes it is uh, what people do. They chase every shiny object that goes by. Something's hot. They have a product. You know, for example, you know, some people want EFI funds. Some people want EM funds. Some people want real estate funds, financial service funds, or natural resource funds. That kind of stuff. Sometimes the stuff becomes hot. People chase it, uh, introduce a new product, raise assets. That's not what we wanted to do. We just wanted to do one thing. Have really one one product which spanned the, what we want to do, which is global stocks. Second, we wanted to build an investment-centric firm. Basically, you stay true to your discipline. And <clears throat> unlike others who drifted into growthy stocks in the last few years, and we'll get to that, I'm sure, to try to keep a performance and they got burned very badly. But we were going to stick to our style of uh, deep value investing. And again, the next thing, of course, that, that this results in, if you're going to do only one thing, one narrow thing, one narrow activity, you don't need a lot of people. You need relatively few good people. Now, finding good people, hiring them, retaining them, keeping them happy is, I mean, that's a challenge unto itself. But the plan was to have a, a small firm and with bright, committed members so you could build a non-hierarchical meritocracy. Two very important words. Non-hierarchical, I mean, where we came from, was a pyramid. Uh, there were people that up, and then there were all the others. We wanted a very flat organization. Uh, second, a meritocracy. I don't want to say it's a eat what you kill kind of thing because it's a collaborative venture. So it's not just what you kill, what we all kill, I suppose. This is coming from an ex-vegetarian, I suppose. <laughs> so the thing about it is you have this meritocracy. It's a scale. The thing of having a few people doing, the, doing one thing and one thing alone is it becomes quite scalable. And that's the idea here behind Moiris. It's, it's not a large firm. There's nine of us. And there's no expectation of it being a very large firm because the thing with larger firms, they usually stem from having many different product areas, many different activities, many different sorts of pursuits. And that when you have a larger firm, there's the bureaucracy element of it. There is all the, how should I say, you have a lot of non-investment activities that distract you. We want to minimize that. And that's sort of how we focused on more building Morris, a very investment-centric firm with a small number of people who focus on what we're doing. And that's sort of how, where we are today. I mean, we're, we started, as I mentioned, in 2015. We opened our doors to outside investors in 2016. We're somewhere on the order of about $800, $850 million of assets under management, which is small in relation to uh, what the behemoths of the world are these days. But again, we're not trying to be what all the other people are. We certainly have no intention of being a BlackRock or something you know, huge like that. We want to be in very narrowly focused areas. That's such an interesting journey. Marty Whitman is a legend among value investors and the investment world. And I cannot pass the opportunity to ask you, how was it to work for and with Marty Whitman? So Marty 
is, was, forgive me, was, he passed away some years ago, was a very demanding person. I mean, much more so as he was younger. He had, he had a very particular style of investing. His style evolved from being a bankruptcy investor. Bankruptcy investors uh, tend to, again, there's usually the, you, the, the prototypical bankruptcy that you try to uh, invest in is a company that probably has a good business, but has a balance sheet that is incapable of supporting the being supported by the business. So what you have to do is you have to fix the balance sheet. Yep. So you try to change the composition of the balance sheet, usually the debt side, so that it is uh, consistent with the cash generating abilities of the business. So that. Biz, that approach to investing uh, on a debt side, in the case of bankruptcies, translated over the years into equity investing. And the equity investing side of the business, the way, as it turned out, was very balance sheet focused. We used to call it the primacy of the balance sheet in the old days. And at Moira's, this is one of the things that we've really taken away from him is we, we are very focused on the balance sheet. The balance sheet is the best guide to a value, valuation. What's the thing worth today, here, and now? You know, what we don't do is we don't forecast future earnings. We didn't do that at Third Avenue. We don't We do not do that more, it's even less so. And so we're very focused on the balance sheet in terms of what the pieces are worth today, what the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the quality of the balance sheet also matters. I mean, for example, uh, we worry about the survivability. So when we buy things, they're usually very cheap. They're very cheap in relation to the balance sheet itself. And um, the company's going to be a survivor. I mean, if it's cheap, it's that cheap. Something's happened. Something usually bad has happened. Either the company, the industry, or some sort of you know capital markets phenomenon, like you know some kind of a Asian, Asian crisis, for example. And that kind of something has happened. So that's how things get cheap. What you want is your company when you buy cheaply, to come out of this over time. And we tend to be long-term investors. Historically, we've owned things for mm, six years, three, five years more. I mean, it really depends on the investment. I mean, I do remember one of the things I used to own when I was Third Avenue, when I was managing, was a, uh, something I owned from 1997 to 2014. It was an emerging market security and a highly volatile emerging market. So. We own things for a really long time. Our turnover is very low. So to stay put in a security, you've got to be confident that the company is going to be a survivor. The probabilities of survivability are enhanced by a good balance sheet, a good business model, and so on and so forth. We have a whole list of criteria with safety. So Marty was very focused on that. And he often owned things for many, many, many years. He was a better buyer, not a great seller. And over the years, he'd buy and sit on things for years and years. And that's something we really learned from him. Uh, what we have over the years, I don't want to say more, the, 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 the changes is we are much more intensely balance sheet focused. We're very focused upon business models. We're very focused on, because we go lots more outside the United States into various other jurisdictions, geographies, the riskiness of a given uh, a part of the world, for example. And so there are particular tweaks to what we learned from Marty that we apply at Moiris. But really a lot of the learning happened. The, the formative years 
were under our mentor, Marty Whitman. So the three of us all worked with him over a number of the years that we were there. And we have chosen to sort of develop it in a sort of very narrow fashion, a very narrow area. And I suppose, I don't want to say be more rigorous about it, but certainly be very um, disciplined in how we apply, apply the, the, the methodology. I guess my next question is, where does the name Moiras come from? So Moiras is the classical Latin word for the defensive fortifications of a city. The root of the word uh, amura, amura, uh, murayada, or a mur in, Francais, in French. So in fact, in our first initial uh, uh, pitch book, we used to have the walls of Cartagena as uh, <laughs> represented from Moiris. The idea of Moiris is defensive fortifications. We try to buy companies which have strong balance sheets. So we think in terms of our companies having a Moiris, uh, the, the, the sort of protective fortifications the fortification that would protect the business against adversity. That's sort of the thought behind Morris. It's probably a very defensive way of thinking about an investment. We just don't want stuff to go wrong, stuff to get bad. Because, you know, inevitably, if you own things for three, five, six, ten years, some bad stuff is going to happen. You just want the company to come out of it the other end uh, and doing well. And that's the importance of a Morris, the fortification, the defensiveness. It's really interesting. Hamid, you are a classic value investor in every specific sense of the word, and the style has been out of favor for quite a long time. From a process perspective, and you've already kind of touched a little bit upon uh, upon this uh, in your uh, in your answers before, but how do you and the team remain loyal to the investment style and have avoid style drifting? Well. I, I suppose it's, it's not wisdom. It's just that I don't know how to do anything anything differently. <laughs> but 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 seriously, we started Moiris and we went straight into the head into a storm, a, a terrible storm where everybody just ran into the growthier and more growthy names, and uh, it, it was a very hostile environment for value investors, as you as you mentioned. You know the way the the, the facile response. I mean, there's a couple of things that happened along the way. Now we're talking, let's say 2014, 16, uh, let's say 17 and thereafter, even more so during the, around the pandemic before and during uh, the pandemic, you had a period when it was being a value investor, especially of our kind, ours is a bit more, shall we say, old fashioned. I don't want to say rigid, but it's much more disciplined. And you, there are things you do and things you absolutely do not do. And that was completely out of fashion. Now, the, the result of this environment was a number of value investors gradually shrank and shrank and shrank, and a number of them went out of business. So that's one. So you had a diminution in the number of players doing what we do. Second, those who survived and looked like they were doing well, if you look at their portfolios, you will see they are buying more and more growthy stocks. So what they did was they relaxed. They relaxed their uh, investment discipline and with the, with the desire to keep up with their neighbors and keep up with the people who are uh, well, the growth investors, they started to introduce an element of growth. So they bought, you know, perhaps uh, – 
they relax the valuation discipline, the discipline from being absolute value, but not relative value in that, you know, you just buy a little bit more expensive, but it's cheaper than many of these other things. That's mm -hmm. how you wind up owning these kinds of things. So you wind up owning all these things, these growthy names. And then come 2022, you, these people got murdered. I mean, there were, were value investors who were very good, have historically been very good, but they certainly they took, they uh, let down their guard, bought all kinds of things that they probably should not have. I mean, they explained it to themselves. They explained it to their clients because this is cheap in a relative manner and blah, 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 and so forth. However, I mean, you saw people who were value investors down by over 40, 45%. I mean, it was quite spectacular. It was horrible. It was unfortunate. Now, the flip side of that is, as I said, we don't, we know no different. And we said, look, we're going to be, we are going to be, um, patient because we've seen bad times like this happen when value completely goes out of fashion. And we, I, mean, I saw that in, uh, you know, during the 99, 2000, in that period. And then you saw a, rever a rever reversal, you know, back to sensible investing afterwards when the TMT bubble collapsed. So this time the bubble was even greater. And then of course you had this period of negative interest rates and you had Q QE and all that craziness that went on. And of course, it got wilder and wilder and wilder. And so we just said, fine, you know, we'll, we'll do what we are doing. We spread ourselves, obviously, across the world. So, I mean, there were cheap things around the world, places that we historically not had the opportunity to buy before. And the portfolio was built. I mean, look, you went in, in a period like that, you go through some difficult times. I mean, of course, this results in your performance uh, <clears throat> not looking very good. And you 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 and you will underperform if you're a disciplined investor of this kind. However, the really big payoff came in 2022, 21, and actually really 22 was the startling payoff when you actually outperformed uh, the indices. You, you you performed positively in absolute terms, and you vastly outperformed the indices. I mean, these things, these numbers are matter of public record. I mean, certainly a public mutual fund, the results are reported out there. I mean, so this was uh, well, a statistically significant amount, I would say. And it was exactly the sort of stuff that we bought over the years. Where, and they were, the companies were doing fine. The stocks were cheap and very cheap. And they began to do very, very well. I mean, a classic case in point were things like uh, our holdings and oil service companies that we bought in periods when uh, oil went to, to negative numbers in the United States. The WTI was, you know, a, a theoretical concept, but it was it was a very, very depressed oil price, and so of course the stocks collapsed and so forth. So you went through that pain, and you uh, you sat you sat it out basically. I mean, obviously to do that. To implement this kind of investment style, you have to have clients who understand what you're doing, what you're trying to do. A, you're a long-term investor. B, you're going to buy stuff that's out of favor and can stay out of favor for a while. Uh, and C, if you've done your work correctly, uh, you will at some point experience the benefits of having been uh, a contrarian investor. So that's sort of uh, how we did it. We stuck, stuck to our knitting and we uh, just stayed there. It was not fun. It was absolutely not fun. You could, you you saw the craziness that was going on, and um, joining the party was a non-starter for us. So, David, there you are. David Einhorn made a comment quite recently that has stirred a lot of comments among value investors when he said that value investing as a business was dead. 
And you've been running or being part of value investing shops for the whole of your career. I was wondering if you had any any thoughts about that. Well, he's right. I mean, he's right because value investing is a business. You realize, as I just mentioned earlier, the number of value investors has gone shrunk, shrunk, and shrunk. Okay, so that is true. That's absolutely true. And to stay in the game, as I mentioned also, a number of value investors have been buying growth stocks of, of different sorts. I mean, growth stocks on the guise of calling them value relatively cheap, you know, so forth. So as a business, it has gotten, it has, it's gotten tougher. But by the same token, one of the things that happens is as the, how should you say, as the number of players shrinks and the f- opportunity set the field of opportunity increases for me. I mean, let me give you an example. Um, he's right. He's totally right in what he says. There is this bias. However, we cast our net in all kinds of places where many of value, traditional value investors tend not to go. I mean, I don't know why, but people just tend to have their own biases, right? So, I mean, historically, Value investors have been shy of going to emerging markets, uh, and the way they do emerging markets is not so not the way we do it. But uh, we can get to that. They are uh, they also tend to have historically tend to do to be sh- wary of resource companies. Uh, I grew up with resource companies in Canada as a as a young person, so I know know a little bit about them, and so. Those are areas that we certainly invested in over the years, and they have done wonderful things for us. I mean, the field of opportunity is interesting, and I suppose he's right. I mean, the traditional U.S. value investor focused on the United States should, I would expect, would likely have a hard time. And there's, you know, because... In the early years, when I was at Third Avenue, value investing was like a path to uh, riches, great riches. And so there was a lot of increase in the number of people who got involved in the business. So you had lots of people do it, chasing this universe of stocks. And of course, some of them drifted outside the United States, mostly to develop markets to Europe, to Japan, and so forth. Relatively few went to other markets, other markets be the Indias, Latin Americas, and so on and so forth. The sort of mechanically easier ones like China, people went into those, uh, Singapore. I mean, the options there have been worked over. I mean, so there's the set of options set there has been diminished enormously. However, you look, every day, you know, there's the page of the book is turned, there's new things to learn and see. And I mean, I, I never have thought that we would have so much in Latin America ever, ever in our funds. But anyway, but that's that's really another story. But the the, the option set where varies over time, the geography, the location, the industry composition, and you have to be adaptable. As I said, doing what you did mechanically and sticking to some very <laughs> narrow, uh, very narrow geographic universe might be difficult, even in the presence of a diminished number of competitors in this space. That's interesting. I, I am definitely going to ask you about uh, investing in international markets in a minute. But before we go there, I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the lessons you learned that were implemented now that you have been able to build your own firm in the image of what you think is the best. So as, as, as I mentioned, you know, for example, uh, what we didn't, we, we wanted a narrowly focused firm, a narrowly focused firm, uh, which is investment centric. 
And we also wanted a firm, which was the thing about the narrow focus is a kind of specialization, but a specialization on one hand, which is while it's deep, it's also very broad. You, you, you go across the world, but you see the world through your filters, through your investment discipline. And the great thing about that is if you are narrowly focused, you can do many, many different uh, industry areas. You're not limited to industry area. You know, for example, it, opportunities come, opportunities go. And in that, you know, I would never, I mean, for a brief period, they, in, in, in my previous firm, we actually had an emerging markets for fund. Now, emerging markets are a heterogeneous group, but sometimes there's lots of opportunities, sometimes there's very few opportunities. And so to have a, a, a focused uh, your business on just being an emerging markets fr- fr- fund is a very difficult way to earn a living or to be an EFI fund, also a difficult way to earn. So we wanted maximum flexibility across the kinds of investments we could make. However, the investments would be viewed through our very disciplined filter of this kind of value investing. And so that, and again, is a small firm. We wanted it to be a small firm. We did not want the bureaucracy. We did not want uh, all, all these administrative headaches. Now, that comes with a different set of challenges. Uh, small firms do not have the luxury of specialization. So we don't have a large compliance department. We don't have a large number of operations. We have a couple of people in operations, two or three. I mean, so we are multitaskers. So we don't have... Um, we're generalists, I suppose. So we, we don't have this luxury of specializing in narrow areas. We all do many things. And I suppose with the passage of time, if as and when we get larger, we will probably have more people, but it's never going to be a large firm. And that's very important to us. Uh, we also, also, when I mentioned we wanted to be a non-hierarchical firm, and that's very important. Uh, it's important because you have people as equals, Everybody in this firm at some point, you know, should they be, uh, if you call, use the term keepers, become owners in the firm. So we all, we all benefit, we all do well when we do well, we all tighten our belt when we don't do so well. So it, it's in that sense, um, it's, it's a very different kind of culture, not that where uh, the people who are younger, junior, live with the crumbs of the people upstairs which is, it's a very different kind of culture than the one we grew up in. I think it's more to our liking. There is a certain degree of uh, flatness, and I said non-hierarchical. I mean, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows lots about everybody. And it's, it's a very collegial kind of place where people treat each other with a tremendous amount of respect, which makes for, it just makes for a more pleasant place and a much infinitely more productive place. So you get a lot, uh, you get a lot done um, with fewer people. I mean, that's sort of the idea. And to the extent you're doing more, uh, if the firm grows, you'll probably do more of the same. It, it becomes a very scalable kind of thing. It's uh, obviously you add, you know, bodies periodically, but that's sort of what we want to do. And ideally, you know, we'd like to, given our backgrounds, investing across the world in developed and developing markets, uh, it's a fairly unique place to be because, you know, value investors typically have tended to focus on developed markets, less so on emerging markets. My, my background as a professional investor starting in 96, we have, I mean, I certainly have done lots in developed, but also in emerging and frontier markets. So in that sense, 
there is some degree of accumulated knowledge about, about these kind of other places where opportunities can lie periodically. So, I mean, that's that really differentiates us in a great way from where we came. Historically, that was not a place where much emerging market investing was done. So you mentioned before that you started your career with Martin Whitman when he was still a bankruptcy devalue investor. And I guess in that period of formation, the rule of law was very important. And it, it is very important for all of our investors, especially in developed yes. markets. How do you think about this specific risk in the context of emerging markets and some of the other risks that tend to be signaled when you mention that you are doing devalue investing in emerging markets? Sure. So uh, you will notice we don't do any distressed bankruptcy investing outside the United States because creditors not have the same position in any reorganization there. There are many more stakeholders involved. And so your returns could be diluted. And also, I think philosophically, you have to be a different kind of person, psychologically, a different kind of person who does bankruptcy investing. Bankruptcy investing types, the ones who are really very good at it, are believers in, a, shall we say, a zero-sum game kind of invest, investment style. That is, what you get, I don't get, and so I'm going to fight tooth and nail. It's going to be a mortal combat to you know get the pieces of the flesh. So we don't do bankruptcy investing, particularly in certainly not outside the United States. In in countries outside the United States, and when you talk rule of law, uh, and just just to be clear, there's a lot of I, for lack of a better word, I think the word crap comes to mind. There's a lot of crap that goes on in the United States capital markets. I mean, there's lots of ways in which, there are more ways in which you can lose money in the United States than in other countries. There's a lot of stuff that goes on over here. But uh, focusing on non-US markets, there's a, you have to have some sense of who you're getting to bed with, what kind of corporate structure you're a part of. You know, holding companies, for example, can be uh, the kiss of death. I mean, all kinds of things go on where in a, if you're in especially a developing market, if there are interrelated companies, you can have related company transactions, which are not reported, and asset value basically drains from the company you own to some something that the uh, control, control party owns. So you have to, there's a, there's a fair amount of know-who that goes on. So it, it takes us a long time to get to know countries, companies, people who run companies. Now, for example, Russia, I looked for, gosh, I mean, Russia was a very big place for investing in the mid-1990s when the privatization program and fortunes were made. Fortunes were made by insiders. Fortunes were made by some of the you know, smarter, more adventurous investors than I. Um, that said, uh, it took me forever to get comfortable with companies, control parties, the nature of the business, how it was regulated, who owned it, on and on and on. It probably took me till 2010, 2012, and so forth, uh, before we made our first investment in Russia. And Russia is not an easy place to invest. And I, I would argue, however, knowing a country, you can actually... Um, Despite perceptions from the outside, you can actually uh, invest with some level of prudence. You know, for example, most people who invest in Russia would be terrified of investing in Pakistan. And we were investing in Pakistan in the very early years of the firm, my, my, my first investment undertaking. And we did extremely well, extremely well in that, um, quite simply, 
we invested in companies that we understood. We invested with people who we whose motivations we understood, people whose behavior we were comfortable with, whose priorities we were comfortable with. There's a number of things you need to check out before you invest. It takes a long time for me to get comfortable with uh, any company or any country for that matter. So there's this, it's not a mechanical checklist that gets you there. It's knowledge of the, the, the sort of ecosystem where the company resides, the nature of the people involved with the company and so forth. And the business model, for example, what they do, how they do it and so forth. I mean, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's a lot more than a purely statistical analysis of financial variables that gets you to invest in a company. There are softer qualitative attributes about a business and the people that are involved, which also can be uh, complete deal breakers. And sometimes businesses look exciting. They have all kinds of fabulous looking uh, uh, financial metrics. But at the end of the day, you have terrible people involved with them. You don't want to deal with it. And so that's how we so there's a lot of that that goes on. And you this is not something that happens if you're in and out in, in companies or countries. You have to spend a lot of time learning about them. I mean, for example, uh, Brazil, you know, now to many people, it's, it's easy and whatever. I mean, you know, fine. Uh, we started from square one. And when we thought we were Third Avenue, we went, visited Brazil pretty much every year, visited many, 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 many companies, every time coming back empty-handed for whatever reason. There were reasons related to the business, the valuation, the people, and so on and so forth. There was always reasons. It re- we really had nothing to do there. I mean, I fast forward to Moiris. That's many, many years later. Fast forward to Moiris. Brazil was going through a crisis. You had Dilma Rousseff. Dilma Rousseff was being indicted. Then, of course, you had Lula thrown into prison and so on and so forth. And finally, a big, and Brazil had its first recession in many, many decades. So we had a tremendous opportunity to invest in Brazil. And that's how we got involved in Brazil and so forth. So it really takes time. It takes time. You know, for example, I'll let take Colombia, for example. I started investing in Colombia in 2003, late 2003. You know, first, you know, easy things like we bought lots of Bavaria. That was a big investment of ours. It took me a, couple, a year or two later, we started buying companies in the GEA. And we were there. We A company we did not buy at that time, given the valuation, was Exito. It's a great, great, great company. We did not buy it. Fast forward, we wind up buying it when uh, we are at Moiris. Because we visited, learned about it, learned, visited every time I'd go to Colombia, we'd visit it, and so on. We just learned about it. Just update, update, update. Learn, keeping on top of what they'd done, what they'd not done, what their plans were, what their expectations were, and how they were building a business. And we admired them. We thought they were very good. They were just they were very expensive stuff. We first bought it probably in 2016. The company was then taken over uh, some years later by a uh, CBD company, Brasilia Distribuição. So it disappeared. Now, no more exito. Well, it's there. It's only 3.5% is traded in the public marketplace. Now, the parent company of CBD is in trouble. Casino. And so to help them out their troubles, they are going to distribute uh, the bulk of their stock holding in exito. Of course, no one's focused on this. At the same time, you can buy CBD for less than the value of its holding in exito alone. 
plus you get the Brazilian business for free, plus you get a holding of 30% of CNOVA, which is an e-commerce business in France, for free, actually negative value. So being aware of a business really helps you invest. Uh, and of course, our discipline, our investment discipline, of course, where we look at things based upon a breakup value, some of the parts uh, on a balance sheet basis, which it sort of liberates us from him, focusing on the earning swings and ups and downs of earnings, which is what everybody else is doing when they look at CBD, which is why we get CBD so cheaply, as a way of buying, creating an ownership position in Exito at a very low price. I mean, so time allows you to learn about businesses, the people, how they run the business, learn about business models. This takes time. So you, it, it doesn't just doesn't happen. That's how you get comfortable. With markets, with companies, with ecosystems, uh, governance structures, political environment, and so forth. Your focus has been on international markets throughout your career. And I think that there's common agreement about the investment community that uh, international markets have been a great place to hunt for ideas over the past decade. I was wondering if you see emerging markets as one of those landscapes where there are so many inefficiencies that it contributes to the hunting ground for a value investor? Historically, you know, the, the funny thing is, historically, uh, value investors, when they've gone outside the United States, have typically gone to developed markets. The favorite ones were obviously Europe, then, then Japan, and they do stuff in Southeast Asia and stuff like that. Um, the bigger markets, be it Hong Kong, be it uh, Singapore and so forth. Emerging markets for, I suppose, a, a very, for, 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 we try to be disciplined value investors, are much harder places. They're very hard uh, depending on the individual market, but they're hard because most people think of emerging markets Uh, you go to emerging markets, buy emerging market stocks, because emerging markets, the economies grow faster than the developed markets. So the companies, of course, that benefit from the growth will be valued higher. The, the demographics are often very good. I mean, the nature, as they, as they develop, as the capital, capital accumulation continues in those countries, they grow faster. And so, of course, it's kind of like buying a growth stock when you buy an emerging market stock. And growth stocks historically have been valued richly. So for the longest time, most emerging market stocks were just expensive, were very expensive. Now, it, it varies from market to market. One market that historically has been a very difficult place for us to invest in, a very interesting place, interesting companies, but very, very expensive collection of companies. That's India. India has had has some absolutely fabulous companies. Uh, however, because they were they were growing rapidly, um, and the, the growth was well recognized, uh, the pricing, the valuation was absolutely absurd. Year after year, you know, everybody in the team, uh, when I was Third Avenue, visited India. Visited India again, like Brazil, we'd come back empty-handed. Then, in 2013. We had the taper tantrum. We had the taper tantrum, which is when Ben Bernanke threatened to raise interest rates. And there was a huge, huge amount of capital outflow from India portfolio managers sold there. And of course, the stocks collapsed, the currency collapsed. It was fabulous. We were ready. We were totally ready. We had, I don't want to say a buy list ready, but we certainly had a list of interesting companies where we wanted to invest if the price was right. And suddenly the price was right and the portfolio became full of Indian securities. 
The second go around similarly was in 2020. The pandemic, of course, in the world shut down, of course, India was hit, Indian stocks were hit. And here too, we built up a, a bunch of Indian securities, not, not as many as in 2013, but we certainly got, you know, some really interesting, interesting companies at very good prices, things we would never, ever be otherwise able to have. So again, the same way we think in terms of developed markets, we also think about emerging markets, except the process is slightly different in that typically valuations are make it difficult for us to buy. So we don't. But we learn. We spend time learning. And Brazil, as I mentioned before, became interesting post the Dilma Rousseff drama, the Lava Jato drama, the, the, the car wash scandal drama that went on. That made things very cheap and interesting there. And Brazil has been actually a source of opportunity because of uh, the ongoing discomfort. Now we have Lula and people don't know what Lula is going to do. Or, for example, Latin America as a whole Again, because we over the years we've invested on and off in them. Uh, one country we have not done much in Latin America was Chile. Chile was always outrageously expensive because of uh, the endless persistent buying because of their pension plans. However, 2019 was a watershed moment in the history of Chile and the stock market. The 2019, the, the political upheavals, of course, then followed by the pandemic. But what was interesting is, for the first time ever, the IFPs, the uh, the pension plans, had to do a lot of selling. There were two, two, three bouts of very large selling of local stocks. Chilean stocks actually started to get cheap. I mean, historically, Chilean stocks were very expensive, but they actually got quite cheap. And we were actually able to make purchases in Chile of companies that, uh, again, there were very there were particularly special situations uh, that we were actually able to buy at absurdly good prices. Um, similarly, political discomfort in Colombia over the last, I suppose, a year and a half, two years, there has been actually, yeah, two years, probably going back to 2021. There's been tremendous amount of discomfort there about the new uh, government, uh, the government of Petro. Now, for the first time in many, many years, things got very cheap there, very cheap. Yes, there was a modicum of political risk, namely Petro would pull, pull, pull off some crazy reforms that did, you know, some, some, some things that would be genuinely damaging to the economy, short term and long term. You know, the idea of just eliminating hydrocarbon production or exploration and so on and so forth, you know, that kind of stuff. And it, it continues to be like a cloud hanging over the economy. However... Uh, what got so cheap was something I historically used as an example. Uh, it's a well-loved big Colombian company. And as I, and I taught a class in uh, Bogota about uh, uh, holding companies. And I compared Grupo Sudamericana, the Inversiones, to a Brazilian holding company. And I asked, what, was, what, what, what is cheaper? What, is che what would you buy? Everybody being, being, being Colombian, given the home bias in those days, said Grupo Sura. Mm -hmm. uh, the irony was, of course, uh, the Brazilian company GP Investimentos was far cheaper. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we, we, we now for the first time ever in many years, I um, mean, we used to own Grupo Sura in 2005, six years ago, haven't owned it ever since. So in 2021, we revisited. It is cheap as it's ever, ever been. And, you know, the idea was very simple. Uh, petro or no petro, I mean, the economy was going to recover from the downturn. 
where the underlying stocks were going to recover, which they were showing signs of recovering. And of course, if the stocks sitting inside this holding company went up in value, the holding company itself would probably start to reflect the appreciation of its holdings. And it was a simple idea. We we're going to own for three to five years, maybe more. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Well, we bought it about 20,000 pesos, 19, 20,000 pesos. This is in, I think, Q3 2021. Then came a gentleman by the name of Jaime Gilinski and made a bid for these for this thing initially in the in the 30s and then the high 30s, 39,000. And we were gone. I mean, so even under periods of discomfort, particularly in periods of discomfort, are great times to buy stocks. The way you can react to discomfort easily is by knowing what you're buying. Know the history, know the businesses, know the uh, ecosystem where they operate, know the pit players, know the goods and the bads of the company. I mean, look, Grupo Sua is not a perfect company. I think that there's a lot of low-hanging food inside it. It can actually be a more efficiently run company. We're not buying great companies. We're just buying very, very cheap companies. So, sorry if that is a long-winded answer to your question. No, no, no. That's fascinating, and def- definitely the um, that case study in Colombia was uh, quite an interesting event. Me being Colombian myself, I was following the situation first time probably in the history of Colombian markets that an activist was making a very big move against one of the groups. You've mentioned in the past the importance of balance sheet and the importance of knowing and understanding the balance sheet and understanding the risk. And it seems to us like people have forgotten about the importance of or how important the balance sheet of the business is. So the question is, in your opinion, has anything really changed in your 30 plus career? And why should people be mindful of the balance sheet and be thinking of balance sheet risk going forward? So the very simple is, if you're a long-term investor, you are, you have to worry about the balance sheet because if you own something for long periods of time, good things happen and bad things happen. If bad things happen and your company has a poor balance sheet, it might not survive. So irrelevant that you bought a cheap stock. If a cheap stock doesn't survive, it is not an investment. Yeah. So, so balance sheets are important to take you from today to tomorrow to day after tomorrow and the year and the year and the year after that. So that the balance sheet is a bridge between now and the future. So balance sheets have to be considered not just in isolation that today this is a snapshot of the balance sheet, this is the debt to equity ratio, this is the EBITDA coverage of interest payments, blah, blah, blah. Those are mechanical things. You have to think of a balance sheet in a holistic manner. Specifically, how does the balance sheet fit in relation to the business model, the nature of the business the company is in? Is the balance sheet adequate to support the business or does the business support the balance sheet adequately, right? So it's a two-way thing in that the business, of course, funds all the needs of the balance sheet, the balance sheet requirements, the cash requirements. Separately, the company grows, the company needs investment. Can the balance sheet with the liquidity on the balance sheet support that? So it's a holistic kind of thing. You also have to absolutely think in terms of the balance sheet with a changing economy over time, bad things happen. So, for example, I just this is this is something that people often forget. Sometimes companies uh, borrow in a mix of currencies. Sometimes currency other than the one in which they earn their revenues. So, for example, you could be a let's say a Turkish company, yeah, a Turkish company which is a real estate company. So, all your earnings are in Turkish lira. 
and you borrow money in US dollars because US dollar funding looks very cheap and you don't hedge it. And uh, so the Turkish leader collapses. I mean, so on day one, you have fabulous coverage ratios. So then, of course, your currency collapses. And of course, your coverage ratios go to hell. I mean, they're the a disaster. You can't pay your interest. You can't service your debt. And so on. So you have to think in terms of the nature of the risks embedded in your balance sheet by the currencies, by the business, and so on and so forth. So it, it, and over time, what look like good balance sheets can become terrible balance sheets. For example, uh, Glencore, you know, company that's been in the news of late. Glencore, when it came public, I think it was in 2011, 12, something like that. Resources were doing very well. Glencore's balance sheet, fabulous. And of course, you know, they issued stock at a fancy price because, you know, they were a fine company. Fast forward, you go forward, I think, to the uh, 20, um 15, 16, 17, I mean, uh, later, heading just pre the pandemic, resources prices are back, out on their back. Glencore's ability to support the balance sheet was a function of resource prices. Resource prices had collapsed. The coverage ratios had imploded. It was in bad shape. That is an equity issue. So what was a good balance sheet under certain circumstances can be a terrible balance sheet as times unfold. So broadly speaking, I mean, this is a big generalization. People think don't think about balance sheets most of the time. When people are busy buying stocks, they're usually optimistic about something. And in periods of optimism, people tend not to think so carefully about the nature of the balance sheet that they're buying into. People tend to start to freak out about balance sheets in bad times. When something goes wrong with a specific business or the economy at large, and or the capital markets go bad, so the company cannot refinance maturing debt. So you have to, if you're a long-term investor, worry about all of this. And a balance sheet is important, both, as I said, in terms of valuation and also in terms of your ability to survive and hopefully thrive. I mean, if you really have a good balance sheet, you can be out there making acquisitions when everybody's out on their back. You can buy businesses cheaply. So that's kind of important. It's very, balance sheets are very, very important to our way of approaching the world. Uh, it's a very particularly conservative way of approaching valuation. It's also a differentiated way of approaching the valuation because you see the different component pieces and what a, an intelligent, proactive management can do with the different pieces. You can sell off this piece, buy back shares. You can distribute those the, the one business to other your, your investors. There's many things that can be done. And viewing a business through the filter of a balance sheet is important both in terms of uh, uh, identifying opportunities, but also being defensive in terms of uh, uh, surviving and you know owning a business for many years. Again, balance sheet focus is not something people have in good times when all they can think of is earnings and earnings growth and all the stuff that growth investors think about, it's kind of a boring thing. It's kind of boring to the value investors, sort of the pessimistic value investors who've been through many cycles and downturns have lived through. So yeah, it's the kind of thing we do a lot of. I mean, uh, communications is something that we have uh, touched upon on this podcast many times before. And I couldn't pass on the opportunity to ask you how and actually, you have mentioned the importance of having good clients and good investors uh, as part of your success. How do you communicate to them 
the importance of being long-term oriented and the fact that you are going to be potentially investing in complex situations or in places that could potentially make them very uncomfortable? So, uh, before people become clients, you have to edu- you have to educate them. You have to tell them what they're getting into. Okay, you you let them know there's going to be historically we've been in all parts, all kinds of parts of the world, developed countries, developing countries, countries where you know there could be discomfort. They the reason behind an opportunity could be that people have run away from it because they're not comfortable with it. It's not an optically attractive situation. So. Before people become clients, you know, there is obviously lots of conversation. They will do lots of due diligence. I mean, they're, you know, they, they're, they usually are reasonably sophisticated people and or at least advised by sophisticated people, uh, people who can understand the kinds of risks that they're taking. But that's a sort of starting point. The at least is important, probably even more important is communicating with people as you go along. As you go along, things happen in the portfolio. Our communications tend to be quite um, voluminous, for lack of a better word. We do two fairly large letters each year. And in the two quarters of the year, the the, the known semi-annual periods, we also do conference calls where we go, this is a longish call, we go through all the details of what we've done, what we've not done, what worked, what didn't work, why didn't work, what our expectations are, and what went wrong. It's also very important to, you know, confess to, you know, stuff did not work, stuff doesn't always work. You tell people why things don't work. You tell people exactly what happened, what went wrong. At the same time, you tell people what went right, you know, and, you know, and, you know, we'll be tired if you tell people that you expected it to happen, therefore it went right. Now, that's just not true. I mean, it's rare that you have such detailed expectations of the future. So there's a fair amount of candor and explain to people just exactly what happened, why it happened, why you think it happened anyway. And, um, you know, telling people what went wrong, that's, that, that's also very important because, you know, there's no question we make mistakes, and dealing with mistakes, uh, understanding the nature of the mistake, and explaining it to clients is important. So, I mean, you know, I, I, otherwise, I think it would, be, it would not be honest not to tell people about that. So, mm. yeah, I mean, that, that, that's very important. And so we uh, typical communications are semi-annual, the big written ones. The calls are twice a year. Then, of course, there's uh, intermittent, shall we say, uh, white papers, position pieces, you know, for example, we did one in Latin America. For example, we did uh, one on, uh, we've done pieces on risk and how we approach risk. We did, we've done pieces on how we approach valuation. And then we've done a sort of an, one, when we first time was an overarching piece on how we think about investing generally. And so as to, so shall we say, to set the tone as to what people should expect, you know, people's expectations and what it is we're doing. Again, we are long-term investors, so don't expect any fireworks in the short term unless it's some sort of random event that makes something happen. Stuff happens. Good things happen and bad things happen to us in the short term. Yeah. But the, really, the focus is long-term. We do try to condition people about that. I mean, we're coming to an end of our session, and we wanted to ask you if you could recommend us a good book. I see a very extended library behind you, so I'm pretty sure that you have some great recommendations for us. So, uh, the book I'm going to suggest is not a how-to investment book in the traditional sense, but it has got absolutely everything to do with how one approaches investing and actually living more generally. 
the book, the name of the book is it's Silence in an Age of Noise. In the Age of Noise. The writer is a man called uh, Erling Kagge. Kagge is he's Norwegian, he's an explorer, he's like the North Pole, the South Pole, climb Mount Everest, and so forth. The book really He's also an art collector, which is a different story. It's a passion of his, and he's written about that too, how to buy art cheaply, which is a different story. But I'm not, not so sure about that. Uh, his, <laughs> his ideas of buying it, what, what, what he considers cheap. But anyway, the book, the book is really a meditation on silence. The impact of silence is underappreciated uh, amongst investors. And most investors, usually you sit in the the, the intersection of a lot of noise, a lot of people talking about a lot of things all the time. You're bombarded by information. There is an importance. There really is an importance. The ability to engage in quiet thought is, would be very conducive to approaching decision making with some clarity. And it's sort of it's very elusive in this day and age where you're surrounded by this chitter chatter and this noise, which is typical of an investor's world. I think it's a fabulous book, but hey, I, I gave gave it to our the entire team a couple of years ago. That's, uh, I, think, I think it's great reading. That's a fascinating recommendation. I think that one of my favorites of all time. I mean, Gwagwayani, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. Juan, thanks very much for having me. This is much appreciated. It was a great conversation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>